please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We are looking at this letter to Ephesians. It's about how God is able to do above and beyond what we could ask or imagine in the church. That's why we're in this letter during these months, to see our vision expand of what God is able to do through his church. And last week, we crossed the continental divide in this great letter. We've gone from chapters 1 through 3, which are all about the blessings that God has poured out on his people in Christ. And we're moving now into chapters 4 through 6, the practical section of the book. And you'll notice in chapters 1 through 3, there's not many commands. There's only one command in chapters 1 through 3, and it's in chapter 2, verse 11, to remember who you once were apart from Christ. But now in chapters 4 through 6, there are going to be lots and lots of commands, lots of practical instruction about how we are to live. And the challenge for us is to never pull out the power cord, never separate the practical instructions from the power to live out this Christian life, which is what we see in chapters 1 through 3. What God has done for us in Jesus, it's resting in that, it's rejoicing in that, that gives us the power now to live in newness of life. And as Tim prayed that we would not be slothful, but that we would be active, I want to start by asking you to do a self-assessment. Before we read the text this morning, I want you to make a mental list of three areas in your life as a Christian where you are most urgently in need of growth. Would you do that right now in your minds? Would you think about what are the three areas in which I am most urgently in need of growth? And don't just passively sit there. Think. Make a mental list. Where do you need to see the Lord Jesus Christ changing you right now? Where do you need that change most urgently? And as we think about those things now, let's read from verse 1 through verse 6 of Ephesians chapter 4. God's word says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you, to live worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will remain forever. Amen. Okay, now think back to your list. The top three areas where you're most urgently in need of growth. What what were some of the things on your list? I imagine some of us had purity or prayer or maybe financial stewardship or maybe being a better witness for Christ. Things like that. 
But did you notice what the Apostle Paul says is most urgently needed for the spiritual life of these Ephesian Christians? It's the central command of these six verses. It's right there in verse 3. Everything is building around verse 3 in this passage where Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And where he says, make every effort, it's a verb of great urgency. He's saying we are to be eager to do this. We are to be diligent about this. We are to be zealous about this. This is something we should be thinking a lot about. This is something we should be working very hard at. And my guess is that it probably didn't appear on the list of the top three areas most of us think we urgently need growth in. It's probably not one of the top three things we think about. But this is, for the Apostle Paul, high priority. And it's a mark of spiritual maturity when this becomes a primary passion of our lives, that I want my life to be all about maintaining the unity of Christ's body. I want to work hard toward keeping the unity. And notice that this unity is not something we create. It's something the Holy Spirit has created. It's called the unity of the Spirit. It's a gift from him. Now, what did we learn back in chapters one, ver- chapter 1, verses 9 and 10? If you want to glance back there, we learn in those verses that God has this grand purpose. He has this plan to bring everything in the universe together in Christ, to take everything that's been splintered and fragmented because of sin and the fall and to bring it together under the lordship of Christ. That's about unity. That's about God's grand purpose and plan. And then we see in chapter 2 that the first place where God is putting this plan to work is in the creation of the church. Chapter 2 is about how the church is the prototype of God's plan to bring everything together under Christ. How the church is like the embassy of the new creation here on earth. And we see in chapter 2 what happens when the gospel is proclaimed and people from different backgrounds, Jews and Gentiles, believe in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Here's what happens. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. It says, "For Jesus, through Jesus, we both, in other words, Jews and Gentiles, all these people who are hostile to one another, now we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's the unity that the Spirit creates. We've been brought into a family of believers and given the gift of oneness, of unity in the family of God. We didn't create this unity, but we are called here in this passage to treasure it, to value it, to preserve it, to guard it, to be zealous, to keep it. Now let's be clear about what unity is and what unity isn't. Unity requires agreement in the truth, but unity doesn't demand identical points of view on every point of doctrine. If you glance down at verse 13 of chapter 4, you'll see that Paul defines the unity that he's talking about here. It's unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. So just like in the human body, 
there are certain parts of the human body that could be removed and you'd still have a vital human body. You could amputate certain portions, but you can't cut off a head or take out a heart and have a vital functioning human body. And likewise, there are certain doctrines like the Trinity and the, the nature of Christ and what he has done to save sinners by grace through faith, that if you cut out these vital doctrines, if you take away the spinal cord of the authority of Scripture, you no longer have unity. We need to agree on certain doctrines. It's unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God that Paul's talking about here. And if you remove these vital doctrines, you cease to have a true church. But there are some doctrines that are important but not essential. We don't have to agree on every single thing in order to have unity. Another thing about unity is that unity in the church requires following godly leadership, but it's not a totalitarian society. Cuba was very unified under Fidel Castro for four four decades, but they had no choice but to be unified under Castro. And in some churches, this is sadly what some leaders mean when they call for unity. They mean, get on my bus, follow my vision, or the bus is going to run you over. That's not the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit is not a spirit of fear. The Holy Spirit does not create a culture where no one can ever disagree where everyone looks exactly alike, where everyone follows the rules because they're afraid what's going to happen to me if I step out of line. But unity is not passivity either. It's not where no one cares even enough about the truth, about the truth to, to even speak out or everyone just tries to blend in and act like we're all happy together. You know one of the most unified places in the world is where you can find Republicans and Democrats and Baptists and Lutherans and people from all kinds of different religions, rich and poor, all existing together calmly. What kind of place is that? It's a cemetery. That's where everyone is in perfect unity. Tozer calls this the beautiful unity of the dead. And you know a church is nearing death when the pastor And the people only ever say nice things to one another. Where no one speaks the truth to one another. Where everyone is so afraid of possibly offending one another that it's just bland. Well, the unity of the Spirit creates a climate where people can be clear and courageous and speak the truth in love to one another. And we're going to see that in verse 15 where leaders can lead in humility and love. We see that in verses 11 through 13. So what is unity? What is this unity of the Spirit that Paul is speaking of here? Well, unity is togetherness. It's the opposite of being scattered. It's when a group of people are united around a common goal, seeking a purpose bigger than themselves. It's a state of mutual pursuits where everyone is saying, I'm not going to look out for my own interests, but I'm going to be looking out for the interests of the team. It's playing together as a team, and we love it when we see it. In business, it's a great thing when a company is unified. The founder of a company that grew to a billion dollars in annual revenue expressed the power of unity in this way. He said, 
if you could get all the people in an organization rowing in the same direction, you could dominate any industry in any market against any competition at any time. That's the power of unity in business. We saw this week the power of unity in sports. A great team like the Milwaukee Bucks clinched the NBA championship for the first time in 50 years. Just a little shout out to my home state. I know all of you people from the land of Lincoln are congratulating the great state of Wisconsin today because of the Bucks' victory. And their most valuable player, Giannis Antetokounmpo, is a great example of a team player. His size, his speed, his ball-handling abilities are great, and they've earned him the nickname, the Greek Freak. But it's not actually the fact that Giannis is actually, he's not the primary ball handler of the Milwaukee Bucks. What makes him great is his ability to play with a team. He's managed to be both the main orchestrator of the team's offense and an elite defensive player, and it's all because of his great playmaking skills. And this started in Giannis' childhood. He learned in his childhood not to be just looking out for his own interests, but for the interests of others. He grew up the son of Nigerian immigrants in Athens, Greece, and lived in a very poor neighborhood there. They were countryless. They couldn't get citizenship. And he and his three brothers loved to play basketball, but they only owned one pair of trainers, shoes, between the four of them. And so whenever Giannis wanted to play, he had to wait for one of his brothers to sub out so that he could put on his brother's shoes and get in the game. And he brought that spirit of unity, that spirit of partnership with him to Milwaukee. When he began earning a salary in Milwaukee, he lived in a small apartment and he sent most of his funds home to his family in Greece. We love to see unity in, in music. Uh, we went to Ravinia a couple times this month and heard the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And on Friday night, we heard, heard a piece by Brahms. And in this piece by Brahms, there was just one little section at the very end of the piece where the percussionist played the triangle. You look at that little thing and you kind of think, yeah, I could do that. I could, I could clang that thing around pretty easily. But they put the spotlight on her for one minute as she had this important role. Very skilled musician. And she had to time her part in that piece perfectly. Now, what if that musical artist would have said, I resent the fact that I only get one minute of fame. I want to play my triangle louder and longer, it would have ruined the whole performance. But by working in unity with the other players in the symphony, she was able to perfect the performance and bring the piece to a grand finale. So without unity, a symphony becomes what? A cacophony. What happens if the string section says, I want to show off my dexterity, and so we're going to start playing faster than the rest of the group. And then the brass section says, hey, what are you doing? And, and we want to show off how strong we are, so we're going to play louder than the rest. And then the wind section says, 
what is it with you people? We're, we're getting out of this all together. And they just stop playing. And then the percussionists get so frustrated, they start throwing their drumsticks at the rest of the symphony. What happens is if the conductor doesn't step in and stop that cacophony instantly, people are going to get up out of their seats, they're going to walk to the gates, they're going to demand their money back, and they're going to go home. And sadly... Too often, that's what happens in churches. When we get lazy about keeping the unity that the Spirit has created in the bond of peace, when we say, oh, that's not that urgent, I'll think about that some other time, what happens is that we start becoming sharp-tongued and self-centered and divisive, and people walk away never to return to the church. And other people watch from a distance and say, I don't want to be a part of that. That's why this is so important to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wants to see the glory of Jesus Christ on display in local churches. He wants to see the church putting the splendor of God's mercy and kindness on display. And he knows that's God's plan to do that for all eternity. And so Paul says, if God's glory is going to be seen in the church, we must be two things. We must be united and we must be pure as a people. And that's what Ephesians 4 is all about. It's about unity and purity. I want to ask, why should we care more than we probably do about keeping the unity of the church? Why should we care? We'll look at that first verse again and notice the word it starts with, therefore. Therefore. In other words, in light of all that I've said to you about God's grace and mercy, how he made you alive when you were dead and raised you up with Christ. Therefore, therefore, don't forget this. Your response to God's grace is through the power of the Holy Spirit and every detail of your lives. Paul says, this should be your desire now. What should it be? Live worthy or walk worthy of the calling you have received. You see that in verse 1? The Christian life is a walk. It's about life on the ground, step by step, day by day. When Jesus comes to take up residence in your life, Jesus says, I want the key to every closet. I want the right to renovate every part of your home. I'm going to change you from the inside out. It's going to affect every detail of the way you live. And your goal as a Christian is to walk in a way that shows that you recognize the weightiness of the gift of salvation that you've been given in Christ. What a treasure it is to be a believer. And you want to show honor to the God who has saved you by responding to his grace. And the very first area that Paul wants us to give urgent attention to is this area of our unity with other believers. John Piper says it like this, we walk unworthily of our calling in Christ if we disregard the unity of the body, if we don't expend any effort to safeguard what Christ died to obtain. Jesus died to make us one. If we don't show effort to keep that unity, we're not walking worthy. Another thing to notice from verse 1 is that Paul is writing this from prison. 
And this is his burden from prison, that we should walk worthy of our calling by being urgent to keep unity. Now, if I was in prison right now suffering because of my testimony for Christ, and I was sending you a video sermon from jail, would you all listen a little bit more carefully to what I was saying? If I was speaking to you from prison, I think your ears would perk up. I think you'd want to know what is on the pastor's heart for our church. He's in jail because of this gospel. And and Paul is saying, this is what's on my heart for you, Ephesians. This is what is burdening me as I'm in prison. I want you to pursue the maintaining of unity in the spirit. That's why we should probably care about this a little bit more than we usually do. Now, secondly, I want to ask, what will it cost us? to keep this unity. Why should we care? Because it's an implication of the gospel and because Paul is exhorting us to walk worthy and because he's doing it from prison. Now, secondly, what will it cost us? What will it cost us to keep the unity of the Spirit in the church? Well, the cost is spelled out in verse 2. Look at what it says. With all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, doesn't that sound attractive to you? Isn't this the kind of community you want to be a part of? I mean, this is about human flourishing here. This is, this is the kind of community, when you're, you're in a community of people who are patient and loving and bearing with one another and humble and gentle, this is where you can flourish. This is what you need. This is what we long for. I I urge you, don't isolate yourself from the fellowship of believers. Pursue being a part of a church that is pursuing these things together because we flourish when we're in a community like this. But here's the challenge. It's easy to see a description like this in verse 2 about humility, gentleness, patience, and love. It's easy to see this as a description of the way other people in the church should treat you. You look at this and you say, yeah, that's what I want in a church. And so you come into the gathering of God's people and you come as a detached observer. Has anyone ever done this? You come into church and and you're looking around and you're thinking in your heart, who's walking worthy of the gospel here? Who's going to love me today? How are they treating me today? Why is that person lifting his hands in worship and, and blocking my view? Or why is that lady standing so stiff and seeming unengaged? Why didn't that person greet me? Why did this person ask me so many questions? We go on and on criticizing. I don't like the way he parked his car. I don't like the way that person prayed. Why can't they keep their kids quiet? Why doesn't that preacher get to his point? And so on and so on. And that we bring that attitude with us to the church. We come as a consumer and as a critic. And whenever we do that, we are keeping ourselves detached at a distance from the compelling Christian community God is calling us to pursue. And what Paul is saying is, no, we need a change of mindset. When you come into the church, the focus should not be on how others are acting toward you, but on how you are relating to others. And if there is one word to describe the kind of attitude and behavior God, has, God is demanding of us here, I would use the word costly. There are three main attitudes that nourish unity in the church, and all of them are costly. Humility, gentleness, 
and patience. Humility is going to cost you. It's going to cost you your sense of entitlement. You're going to have to relinquish your desire to be the center of people's attention. Humility means that you won't come to church demanding to be cared for or noticed. Humility means you won't be offended if you don't get a particular leader's attention because today he or she needs to care for, welcome someone else, minister to someone else's needs. Humility means that you don't assume that you're always right. And ask yourself, when you talk about a situation, when you talk about a person, when you're in the middle of some type of disagreement, do you normally assume, I'm right and he's wrong? Or do you try to understand their position? Do you try to understand their struggles? Listen, if everyone in our church was committed to keeping other people's interests ahead of our own, there would be no possibility of disunity ever in our church if we really paid the price of humility. What about gentleness? Gentleness will cost you your right to assert your own rights in relationships. An ungentle person is rough, and tough with others, demanding, inflexible. An ungentle person says, what's your problem? I didn't do anything wrong. Whereas a gentle person says, I'm going to assume that I'm at fault in some way too. And I want to understand how we can reconcile. Gentleness has famously been called strength under control. It's the opposite of what we like to do is throw our own weight around. It's the disposition that enables us not to take offense when other people are offensive. And instead of bullying other people into submission, a gentle person says, I want to set an example. I want to live in such a way that people want to follow my example. They want to become better because they see how I'm living. And then patience. Patience is costly. Patience requires you to endure, to put up with things, to be long-suffering toward others. Listen, I've been a pastor in this area at Grace and New Covenant for almost 30 years. And one of the things that has given me the most joy is when I see believers who have difficulties and conflicts with one another and they stick it out and they continue persevering in relationships. They stay in the same church and they learn how to love one another and they become friends even after great hardships and difficulties. I love to see when believers suffer long with one another and don't give up. And conversely, let me tell you one of the greatest sadnesses that I've seen. It's when people walk away from one another at the slightest provocation. They just say, if that's the way they're going to act, I'm out of here. They go to a different church and move from church to church and don't pursue this kind of love and unity that Paul says is going to cost us something. Patience is the willingness to wait for people to change because you know that God is being so 
patient with you. You're not changing overnight. You're not everything that God wants you to be yet. God is still in the process of sanctifying you. So do you realize how realistic this list is in verse 2? This is real life in the church. It's so refreshing to hear the Apostle Paul say, if you want to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, you're going to have to learn how to endure one another. You're going to have to learn how to put up with one another. Because the truth is, there are people at New Covenant who are going to be irritating and annoying and rude and grumpy and fault-finding and finicky. And if you haven't experienced that yet, it's because you're new here. And the reason I know that is true is because I can be irritating and fault-finding and grumpy and finicky. And if you want a list of more, ask Kate, and she'll tell you. But God is very patient with us, isn't he? If we have a true sense of how much further we need to go in our own sanctification, we will remember often, God, thank you for being patient with me. So we can be humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love, when we remember that this is the way of Christ toward us. The one passage where Jesus tells us what his heart is like, what moves him in the depths of his being, is in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, where he says this, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Come to me and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am lowly, and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's Christ's character. He is gentle and lowly in heart. He is humble in heart. When Jesus was hungry, what did he do? He fed others. When Jesus was weary, he said, come to me and I'll give you rest. When Jesus was treated despicably, he said, Father, forgive them. It's costly. It's costly to be humble and gentle and patient, to bear with one another in love. But the supreme price of our unity has been paid in full by what Jesus has done on the cross and by his payment on the cross, by his costly humility and gentleness and patience and long-suffering to us. Jesus has brought us into the Father's family. He has made us a people who are one, who are living under God's gracious patience. How are we doing in this as a church? I want to say thank you, Lord, that this church in 11 years of its existence has not had any major divisions, has not had any conflicts that have ripped us apart. I am grateful for that. I am grateful for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But I want to encourage you as God's people, let us not take this for granted. Let us not think that this is an automatic the last couple years, the church across our country has gone through great stress. There's a lot of fragmentation. And what we need to remember as a church is that our unity is based around one thing, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's our common love for him. It's the fact that we belong to him. This is our identity. Our identity is not found in our political positions. Our identity is not found in whether you wear masks or don't wear a mask or how you believe about COVID. Our identity is not found in how you educate your children, whether you come here to Heritage Homeschool, which we welcome you, or whether your kids go to public school. That is not our identity. Our identity is the gospel of Jesus Christ and belonging to his church, belonging to his family is a gift of grace, and we need to cherish that gift 
And we need to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We do that by focusing on the humility and gentleness and patience of Christ toward us. Well, I want to end by just saying we can be encouraged that this effort, this hard work, that's costly, you can be encouraged that it's not a waste of time. It's not an exercise in futility. Though it can look as if the church of Jesus is splintered and divided at times, and sometimes it can feel like the unity of the church is as fragile as a spider's web, your work to keep unity in the church is not an exercise in futility. How do we know our labor to keep the unity of the Spirit is not in vain? We'll look at verses 4 through 6. This is the motive that God's Word gives us to pursue this unity. It's seven ones. You see that? One body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over us all, who is through us all, who is in us all, who believe in Jesus. What I want you to notice about this list of seven ones is the backbone that holds this oneness together. What's the backbone of this list? It's the Trinity. One God in three persons, eternally one and indivisible. So just as in the one God, there is a unity of persons who are different but equal and working together in unity, it's supposed to be the same in the church. A unity of people who are different but equal, sacrificially serving one another in love. And when you get a hold of this, you realize that the unity of the church is sourced in the unity of the triune God. It's breathtaking. Listen, you cannot separate the Godhead from one another. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are indivisible. They are one eternally forever. And in God's mind, that's the way his church is too. We look at it from the ground and we say, really? But God looks at it from his heavenly, eternal plan to bring everything together under Christ as head. And God says, my church is one, indivisible. They belong to me. And with all the strife and all the discord and all the schisms that we sometimes see in the Father's family, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are working together to ensure that we, the redeemed, are going to be strong in purpose and in unity. And he's working together to ensure that one day there's going to be before the throne of God and the Lamb this redeemed multitude from every tribe and language and nation, from every generation, praising the Savior who paid the price to make us one. That's what encourages us that our efforts to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace are not a waste of time. So we're going to now express our unity together in three ways. First, we're going to say the Apostles' Creed together. As I've gotten older in Christ, this has become an increasingly precious act of worship to me, and I'll tell you why. It's because this is, the, this is the one faith that Christians have been confessing for 2,000 years. This is what God has 
preserved in his church for his people to believe. And maybe you came under the tent today and you thought, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian today, actually. I don't know if I really believe in Christ yet. But you've heard today about his humility. You've heard about his gentleness. You've heard about his patience, long-suffering love. You hear about how he died on the cross to rescue sinners from the wrath our sins deserve and to bring us into the Father's family where we're loved and welcomed and accepted by him. And maybe there's someone here right now who's saying, I want to know this God. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to be a Christian. By saying this creed, this, this faith, by expressing this faith together with God's people, this could be for someone your first act of faith today where you're saying, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus, his Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus died to forgive me and to cleanse me. So if you want to become a Christian today, you can, from your heart, join the church in confessing this as your faith. And after we do that together as Christians, we're going to sing a song focusing on the Holy Spirit, who is the one in whom we have this unity. He's the one who binds us together in peace, who enables us to live lives of humility and gentleness and patience and love. And then we're going to take communion together. So would you join me, church, now in standing as we worship God. Take this insert or this sheet. And join me in joyful confession of our faith together. As one, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.